Yes, we miss having our flight correspondent Vladimir Zerovik on this program. Unfortunately, Vlado left us last year. We do have on our website a tribute to him with some of our more memorable conversations. But alas, I, should, I wish I could ask him about the next two items we're going to kick around. This idea of using drones to deliver stuff. Call us skeptics. So I was a bit startled to read in the Half Moon Bay Review that the newspaper is commencing delivery of the papers by drone. Each unit is described as being able to carry up to 24 newspapers at a time, and the paper is planning to make 80% of its home deliveries by drone by the end of the year. We're going to watch how this experiment goes down and maybe duck a few times as these rather substantial aircraft come whizzing into the neighborhood. Mr. McMillan apparently thinks this is a great idea. Anyway, I wish we could ask Vlado about this and about the fact that in the wake of that um, horrible story in Europe of the crazy pilot committing suicide and taking 150 people with him, I have to say it was with dismay I saw the headline from the New York Times saying, After crash, experts eye pilotless planes. We talked about this in passing on the show in previous years that a lot of folks out there think you should be able to get on an airplane and fly around the world without having a pilot since he's really only a backup system now. Personally, I think it's a backup system that should be retained. By the way, it is my hope I can live out the rest of my life and never get into an automatically driven automobile. Oh, I may have to rethink that if I go to Asia. Uh, Anyway, moving right along. I do have to sort of laugh at the summary in uh, the Week magazine, their briefing section on pilotless aircraft. In response to the question, how much safer can flying get? The answer was, some experts believe fully automated flights would be safer because they'd eliminate human error. And well, that is true. But you know, if you're like me and have never experienced a crashing of the system that involved computers, then you'd be all for this, right? Of course, the real issue here is not really passenger safety. Under the sidebar, Eliminating Human Error, the magazine noted that, uh, well, this equipment, of course, already exists. In modern jetliners, most of the flight is spent in autopilot, and onboard computers help the pilot land. With fully autonomous aircraft, one pilot on the ground would be able to monitor a number of flights simultaneously. But while that would sharply reduce the risk of human error, (laughs) yeah, no humans, no error, not to mention the airline's costs, It would throw up other hazards, such as terrorists hacking the automatic pilot or communications between the flight and the ground pilot breaking down. Besides, it adds, it would be difficult to persuade nervous passengers to board a plane without a pilot. Well, yours truly is just never going to do that, period. End of discussion, okay? Magazine quoted flight researcher Mary Cummings as saying, the need to see James T. Kirk on the bridge is strong. Well, yeah, you, if you can get him. But I'd settle for just a regularly trained, good old-fashioned pilot, frankly. You know, how are you going to program into a computer what Captain Sullenberger did, which is, you know, in a pinch, land the plane on the Hudson? I mean, computer programmers are clever people, make no mistake about it, but I just don't see them covering that contingency. You know what I mean? All right, let's see if in maybe three or four minutes we can't make some comments about this controversy over in Europe between Greece and Germany. After reading Boomerang by Michael Lewis, I tended to be very sympathetic to the German viewpoint. Because as Lewis pointed out in his second chapter, which he titled, And They Invented Math, 
that, well, the Greeks just haven't lived up to their reputation for, um, well, doing things the right way. Chris, now that I think about it, have the Greeks ever had a reputation for doing things the right way? They're inventive, but doing things the right way? I don't know whether they ever ran an economy the right way, but currently they're definitely not doing that. Lewis went over to take a look at what was going on in Greece and found out that um, the long-term picture, and he was writing this in 2011, was a lot bleaker than anybody even knew. He noted that in addition to the roughly $400 billion and growing of outstanding government debt, the Greek number crunchers had just then figured out that their government actually owed another $800 billion or more in pensions. When you add that in, you get $1.2 trillion in debt. And when you divide that by every working Greek, it turns out that everyone over there owes a quarter of a million dollars in debt. This quotes a senior IMF official as telling him, our people went in and couldn't believe what they found. Noting the way they were keeping track of their finances was that they knew how much they had agreed to spend, but no one was keeping track of what he'd actually spent. Adding, it wasn't even what you would call an emerging economy. It was a third world country. It turns out that in Greece, the average government job pays almost three times the average private sector job. The average state railroad employee earned 65,000 euros a year. That's back when the euro was worth $1.3. He noted that 20 years before that, a successful businessman turned minister of finance named Stefanos Manos pointed out that it would be cheaper to put all of Greece's rail passengers into taxi cabs. And it's still true. The Greek public school system is described as the site of breathtaking inefficiency. It's one of the lowest-ranked systems in Europe, but it nevertheless manages to employ four times as many teachers per pupil as the highest rank, Finland's. Learning that Greeks who send their children to public schools simply assume they will need to hire private tutors to make sure they actually learn something. The retirement for Greek jobs classified as arduous is as early as 55 for men and 50 for women. Oh, and more than 600 Greek professions have managed to get themselves classified as arduous, including hairdressers, radio announcers, waiters, and musicians. The Greek public health care system spends far more on supplies than the European average, and it is not uncommon, several Greeks told Lewis, to see nurses and doctors leaving their jobs with arms filled with paper towels and diapers and whatever else they can plunder from the supply closets. To paying taxes, well, apparently nobody in Greece wants to do that. It's hard to blame them. Most people don't want to do that. But the difference is, in Greece, they don't. Lewis talked to a tax collector who told him that he took it for granted, that the only Greeks who paid taxes were the ones who couldn't avoid doing so, which were the salaried employees of corporations who had their taxes withheld from their paychecks. The vast economy of self-employed workers, which is everyone from doctors to the guy who runs the kiosk selling the International Herald Tribune, cheated. The tax collector said, it's become a cultural trait. The Greek people never learned to pay their taxes, and they never did because no one's punished. No one's ever been punished. It's a cavalier offense, like a gentleman not opening a door for a lady. The tax collector told him that if the law was enforced, every doctor in Greece would be in jail. Noting the reason no one's ever prosecuted, apart from the fact that prosecution would seem arbitrary, since everybody's doing it, is that the Greek courts take up to 15 years to resolve tax cases. A second tax collector explained to Lewis um, that how it is that Greek corporations don't pay any taxes. Of course, maybe America learned from the Greeks. 
He cited an Athenian construction company that built seven giant apartment buildings and sold off nearly a thousand condominiums in the heart of the city. Its corporate tax bill, honestly computed, came to 15 million euros. The company had, in fact, paid nothing. Zero. To evade taxes, it had done several things. First, it never declared itself a corporation. Second, it employed one of the dozens of companies that do nothing but create fraudulent receipts. And then when the tax collector managed to stumble upon the situation, they offered him a bribe. Turns out this particular tax collector blew the whistle anyway and referred the case to his bosses. Whereupon, he found himself being tailed by private investigators and his phone tapped. In the end, the case was resolved. The construction company paid up. They paid 2,000 euros. So the tax collector, after that, I was taken off all tax investigations because I was good at it. Yes, this is the economy that appears to be in trouble. Who does it have to blame for their troubles? Well, our guess is not the rest of Europe that loaned the money. Anyway, for more details, you might want to check out what uh, Michael Lewis wrote in Boomerang. It's a pretty entertaining read. He does also take a shot at the Germans in Chapter 4 and explains how Ireland's economic miracle went belly up in Chapter 3. But I think my favorite, actually, of the whole book was his discussion of how it is a few 20-somethings managed to seize control of the Icelandic economy and wreck it. All right, and a guy we need to add to our list of prospective future interview subjects would be author Charles Mann. His book, 1491, won all kinds of book awards, and he's got a sequel to it titled 1493. The first one took a look at the new world before Columbus got here, and the sequel talks about what happened after all hell broke loose and the two hemispheres of the planet were permanently linked up. I heard Mr. Mann speaking on KGO. There's a new program by a man named John Batchelor. In fact, Mr. Mann, we ought to get John Batchelor himself on this program if he'll come on, because the guy is doing a damn good job. It's clear that he's read the materials <laughs> before he interviews the author, which, which we know from talking to our guests is uh, astonishingly rare. Well, in fairness, even really good interviewers like uh, Michael Krasny does not have time to read all the books of the people he interviews. That's something of a luxury of the weekly radio program, like ours. But I was quite knocked out listening to Charles Mann on the John Batchelor Show when he talked about something that we have made passing mention of on this program, well, at least many years ago we did. The subject was that of Potosi in Bolivia. This correspondent was privileged to visit that uh, city up at 13,000 feet in the Andes back in 1994. And I must say, it was one of the most interesting spots I think I've ever been to. But after hearing Charles Mann talk about it, it turns out it's even more interesting than I knew. The city of Potosi was founded on a silver strike. In fact, it was the richest vein of silver ever found on Earth and about as rich a vein of silver as geology can make possible. It does please me to note that I have a small chunk of that silver ore here in my home. But it turned out this mountain in the Andes had a ledge of silver ore that was 300 feet long, 1,300 feet wide, and 300 feet deep. This ledge was composed of about 50% silver. It was so rich the Spaniards didn't know how to purify it. They kept boiling away the silver. It turns out the Andean Indians had some of the world's most advanced metallurgy. The locals were able to do what the foreigners couldn't. In low-temperature smelters fueled by dry grass and llama dung, they were able to extract the silver. But as luck would have it, the Spaniards chanced upon a more efficient method of bringing the silver out of the ore, which was to use mercury. And they discovered a big strike of mercury at a second Andean peak. 
Juan Cavalica, which was 800 miles northwest. The upshot of all this was that Potosi in Bolivia produced silver for the Spanish Empire, the likes of which nobody had ever seen. In fact, much of the world, including, rather surprisingly, China, soon found that its commerce was dependent upon silver coins struck in Bolivia. The Spanish wound up shipping a lot of these silver galleons to the Philippines, where Chinese intermediaries brokered deals to uh, move the exotic goods of the East into Western hands in exchange for silver. It's a hell of a tale, and I can't even begin to tell it right, but I think Charles Mann will be able to, if we get him on this program, make a note, Mr. Willem, we're going to try and get him on by, let's say, July. Noted. The burden is now upon me to read the damn book. I did note with some gladness in reading Mann's book that he said that sometimes it said that the mines killed three to eight million people. This is an exaggeration, to which I add, thank God. When we took a tour inside the mines, led by our travel director... And she was talking about how the local Indians regarded the Spanish as gods, evil gods, but gods, and how they had lost, according to her figures, you know, three million people over three centuries. Note that the Spanish couple, who was part of our international contingent, (laughs) started whistling nonchalantly after she told this tale, which uh, did bring the house down. We were actually more worried that the house was going to be brought down by the dynamite, which we purchased outside of the mines and took inside and then gave as gifts to the poor miners. And if you've ever bought a stick of dynamite for like a buck and then given it to someone to use, well, I recommend you try it. It's very rewarding. And I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I will anyway. They were also selling packets of ammonium nitrate to give you a much bigger bang for your buck. And although I probably should have done that, I was so impressed with the fact that I could buy dynamite from a vendor that I stopped right there. And yes, at this point, the, the mines are, are, are largely played out, but they can still, um, you know, earn a living for poor people by getting a bit of ore here and there. But these are poor people. They are all chewing coca leaf to give them more energy. And they all do very much appreciate it when the tourist gives them a freebie stick of dynamite to use to blow out yet more ore. Now, I have to confess, when I was inside the bowels of a mountain, somebody's tamping dynamite into a hole he's driven into the rock, and we're told we're going to go around the corner after they light the fuse. Yes, you have visions of living out a Roadrunner cartoon. But in fact, we went around the bend. They blew off the dynamite. It was just kind of a poof. Anyway, the whole damn thing was a pretty interesting experience. But the part I probably shouldn't tell you about was the fact that when we came back out, we still had a few sticks of dynamite left. Now, one of our guides was in the Bolivian military, and when a couple of us suggested we take a couple sticks of dynamite out and make a really big firecracker experiment out of this, he grinned, slid open the dynamite, slipped the fuse in, and said to us, que criminales, which would translate as, what a bunch of criminals you are. But uh, we blew it off and... Nobody got hurt, and it was kind of fun. As we were engaged in this sort of activity, some of the local kids came over and asked if they could have a stick of dynamite. And since it seemed to me they were obviously used to playing with these toys, I gave them one, which did prompt another couple traveling with us to look at me and say, you're a doctor, right? Said yes. And they added, and you give sticks of dynamite to children. I said yes. And we stuck around long enough to watch them go blow off their stick and have a good time. So there you have it. 
For a good time all round, we recommend Dynamite. And as I thought about later, I really shouldn't take too much crap from this couple. In their day job, they worked in Los Alamos, New Mexico, building nuclear weapons. I think blowing those things off is a lot less funny. And uh, Mr. Vermillion asks me how many people we think were actually killed in the Potosi mines, and I don't have the answer to that, but maybe Mr. Mann will. I do know when they told us that when they ran out of local populace to enslave, they brought Africans over to work in the mines. And I'd read a stat somewhere saying that 1% of the Bolivian population was black, but I was skeptical, even when they told me that, you know, the slaves, a lot of slaves got away and just headed for, you know, lower altitudes. Our guide, Maria Laura, assured us that there were actually small villages up in the Andes that were composed of black people. I thought, yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. But by God, a week later, when I joined uh, a further expedition by one of the group who was a, a Dutch journalist, and he, we went down to the Yungus, where they grow a lot of the cocaine in Bolivia, we chanced upon, yes, a village composed of black people. They wore the same indigenous garb of the Andean uh, folks in other villages. They spoke Spanish, but they were, without a doubt, African South Americans. All right, I have several science items I want to do, but I'm only going to have time for one, it looks like, so let's do the main one. Let's assume you're, say, 45 years old or older. If you are, you may remember the startling news that came out of research vessels in the ocean that there was apparently an entirely different type of ecosystem. What we now call black smoker hydrothermal vents were discovered and a whole ecosystem around them of clams and worms and shrimp was discovered back in the 70s. It was surmised that the hydrogen sulfide gas being spewed from these vents was being used by microorganisms which in turn formed the bottom of the food chain. And while this is true, it was widely said at the time, and still repeated even up till the present era, that um, this represented a unique ecosystem, which unlike other ecosystems on, on Earth, did not depend upon photosynthesis. Well, it turned out this is way, way wrong. Wonderful piece in the current edition of New Scientist, April 4th issue, titled Alternative Lifestyle, Notes that the process that allows life to thrive in deep sea vents are happening all around us, according to author and marine biologist Nick Higgs. The fact of the matter is that bacteria, even in shallow seas and really all over the place, rely on simple chemicals found in their surroundings. This process is called chemosynthesis as opposed to photosynthesis. And according to the piece, it notes that this process is what allows spectacular oases of life to thrive at hydrothermal vents. But what's less well known is that far from being limited to the deep sea vents, animals that rely on chemosynthetic bacteria have turned up in all kinds of places. He cites the example of lucinid clams, which are really all over the place in ecosystems. They are a bit unusual though because they get all or part of their food from symbiotic bacteria living in their gills. While the clams rely on the symbiotic bacteria, the clams themselves form a lower part of the food chain because they're eaten by higher animals. The punchline of all this is that uh, chemosynthesis is far more important to the world's ecosystems than anybody had previously imagined. 
From the 1980s onward, biologists began to discover chemosynthetic symbioses in a wide range of invertebrates, from tiny nematode worms and sponges to giant clams, living everywhere from mangrove swamps to the deep sea. The animals shelter the bacteria and help them get the chemicals that they feed on. In turn, the bacteria supply them with food. Many, in fact, depend so much on these bacteria that their guts are underdeveloped or absent. The piece notes that while there's been much interest in how these symbioses work, the assumption has been that chemosynthesis plays only a very minor role in shallow marine ecosystems. That assumption is turning out to be wrong. Notes the piece. Take the two million red knot birds that migrate from Siberia to an area of intertidal mudflats and seagrass beds in West Africa. What all those birds have been feeding on has been a bit of a puzzle. The answer turns out to be loosened clams. Studies show that vast flocks of these red knots get half of their food from the clams. The bacteria in the lucinids recycle energy from rotting seagrass that would otherwise be buried in sediments. And this research is leading to some other examples of plant debris being recycled by chemosynthesis. Rivers wash vast quantities of plant material into the sea, but it's always been assumed that little entered the marine food web. But then in 2009, researchers in the UK showed that marine relatives of earthworms called oligochaete worms can consume this organic matter and pass it up the food chain to the birds and fish that feed on them. Now, German researchers have found that the worms have chemosynthetic bacteria living on their skin. In fact, the bacteria are exactly the same as those associated with shrimp, crab, and snails at the deep sea hydrothermal vents. Hell of a piece. I recommend you read it, dear listener. Concludes by noting that it's not just the sea. Recent studies have shown that chemosynthesis plays a role in lakes and rivers too. The author notes it's amazing that the phenomenon first discovered in the dark depths of the ocean has turned out to be happening in our backyards all this time. And you know, this whole idea that most of the Earth's uh, ecosystems are running off of sunlight, boy, this needs to get challenged. I was always amazed in taking a class in bacteriology at how many different chemical reactions could uh, be harnessed by various forms of bacterial life, and new ones keep emerging. New scientists notes that bacteria have now been found that grow on tiny magnetic particles that they use as natural rechargeable batteries. Researchers are now finding that tiny crystals of magnetite, which is a common magnetic mineral, can be used as an electron acceptor and electron donor for the bacteria. They do work like a battery. Of course, it's been estimated that uh, all of the bacterial life deep in the Earth's crust and the cracks and veins and rocks and such, if you added up all that biomass, it would equal or exceed that of the life found on the surface. I don't know if it's true, but it's pretty weird statistic. And I have four other articles in my hand related to this about how uh, sponge microbiomes probably helped aerate our oceans hundreds of millions of years ago, changing life on Earth. How an ancient life helped form the Earth's largest gold hoard in South Africa. How they're learning how to make better chocolate by making better fermentation of the pods. And how we're learning more and more about food, particularly fermented foods, which may help us uh, harness bugs better in lots of ways. So we'll try and get to those in a little more detail in the future. But we're out of time for the second segment, so let's take a break. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. Bacteria. Bacteria. Look, there's bacteria. 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 You might not see them, but they're there. Bacteria. Bacteria. Everything you touch. Bacteria. Bacteria. That's right. Salmonella bacteria. 
But we have to watch out for bacteria that can spoil our chicken. Bacteria practically everywhere. Everywhere you look.